0: Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, as you're uh, giving your uh, gifts and your Registering your affirmation for uh, both of these men that are willing to serve our church. We appreciate that. If you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, we're going to be looking at that in a moment. But I want to take care of some family business uh, while we're doing these uh, two or three things together. Uh, as Peter mentioned about Advent opening next Sunday night, we want to encourage you to just make that a part of your Sunday night. I want to say this to kind of clear the air. I know the holidays are busy enough without a bunch of extra programming put on you by the church. So, what we're really asking you to do is not to add more, but to say no to less important things. And uh, so that you can grow and be inspired during the season to just focus on what the most important thing is. At, At 5 o'clock every Sunday night, starting next Sunday through Christmas, we're going to be having these Advent services. And at 4 o'clock, previous to each one of them for an hour, is going to be an opportunity for us to do Christmas Impact. And we're going to be partnering with CICM, which is Central India Christian Mission, as well as uh, Life Choices here in Joplin, to provide some care packages and to do some things of encouragement for those ministries. And so we encourage you, bring your family or just come by yourself early at about four o'clock and there'll be a brief explanation of what we're doing and just a a limited window of opportunity for us to partner in Christmas impact, both in our own community and across the globe. So we hope that you'll make uh, that a part of your plans as you see fit. The second thing I want to bring up, and this is just Mark talking to his friends, I want to talk to you about the journals. Last week, there was some hand wringing about the fact that the outline of the message isn't in your journal. Now, if you think I'm about to make fun of you, uh, let me say it this way. I understand you. If I can't have all the notes, I'm not sure I want to take notes and, and people are getting stressed out. And here's what we want to tell you about the journal. The journal is for you to record the things that impact you most from our study together. So you don't have to keep a complete outline. But if you have to do that to survive the day, and I understand you, You can go to our resource center on the other side of the cafe and printed outlines will be available for you. For the rest of you, you can go to the app that you can put on your phone or you can go to our webpage and the outline will be provided within the app so that if you want to have that open and go through there and put your notes in there, you can do that as well. But we are here to please every one of you and we just tried, okay? Does that make sense? So if you need a physical outline, go to the resource center, we'll make them available. If you miss a Sunday... And you want a completed outline with the notes, I guess they're going to make those available for you too. So just go to the Resource Center, make yourself comfortable in that environment, and uh, we'll try to make sure everyone has what they want. They're going to try to put on the screen here an opportunity for the notes to stay up a little bit longer so you can record the things that you want in your journal. And uh, hopefully that becomes a part of your process as well. Well, this is week two, as Peter explained in our series, The Gospel looking at King Jesus and his kingdom and what's revealed in all of that. Last week, Michael introduced to us the authorship of the Gospels and what each author was trying to accomplish. And one of my favorite parts of his message last week was Michael even pointed out what's at risk if what they're telling us isn't true. I don't know if you've ever read the Gospels that way, but that's going to be a new insight for me. If this isn't true, then what have I bet my life on that's at risk? And so he introduced us to that last week, and then for some reason, I thought I was a senior minister, I got the genealogy for week two. So I don't know how that worked out, you'd have thought I'd have been smarter than that. But actually, I'm really excited to talk to you about the genealogy, because what I want to point out from the very beginning is that only two of the gospel writers put a genealogy in their writings, Matthew and Luke. Matthew opens his letter with it. This is why we're in Matthew 1 today. And I'm going to allude to Luke, but we're not going to spend time in there, and you'll you'll be able to read that on your own. But in Luke chapter 3, three chapters into his history of Jesus, does he introduce his genealogy? And so we just wanted to kind of point this out. I'm going to ask and answer four questions this morning to help us understand how to value the genealogy. Because here's what most of us do, I'm guessing. And I'm pretty sure I'm right. Most of us get to a genealogy when we're reading through the Bible in a year, and we thank God that we get a day off, don't we? You kind of go, yeah, 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 good story. Or if I would read the genealogy to you today, you wouldn't pay attention to the names. You'd just be wondering, am I saying them correctly? So because of that, I'd like to spend a little bit of time in the genealogies this morning so we understand the value of what they're saying to us, because... Both in Luke and Matthew, they don't record every name. They don't trace it back person by person to be accurate. What they're actually doing is they're including some and excluding others, and that's what we're looking for. Why? What's being said by who's in the genealogy? Because that's what we have to work with. So we're going to ask and answer four questions. The very first one today is, where did he come from? This is a point that Matthew's making as you spend time in this. But let me tell you, Luke, when Luke does his genealogy, he's going to take you all the way back to Adam. Luke is talking about the son of man. He's talking about the incarnated God on earth and how he traces back all the way to Adam. Matthew doesn't do that. Matthew traces his genealogy back to Abraham. And you'd ask the question, why? Why? Well, Matthew's writing to Jews, and Father Abraham is the most fundamental person for them understanding the promise of God. It goes all the way back to the promise made in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham that he would have a son, and that son would bring the Redeemer. Luke, however, is writing to Gentiles, non-Jews. And so Father Abraham is not epic to them, because they've been excluded by Abraham's kids for the most part. So Luke takes us all the way back to Adam, where all of us know, whether we're Jew or Gentile, we all know we came from that guy. And so two different intents, neither one of them are exhaustive genealogies, they're selective genealogies, and we'll learn from that this morning. So not everyone's mentioned, but those that are mentioned are important, and that's what we're going to look at. Let's begin reading the first three verses of chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac, the father of Jacob and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. We'll stop there. So as we read this passage, you'll notice that he begins with the son of David, the son of Abraham, but he begins with Abraham and he starts by saying he was the father of Isaac. Well, why would he make this point? Why does he start here? Because here's what Matthew's pointing out to us. The story of Isaac, if you were with us this fall in the Shadow Series, we talked about his mom, right? We talked about Sarah. Sarah was a 90-year-old woman who was shocked and maybe possibly horrified that she was going to have a baby. And by drawing the mind back to Sarah and Abraham's story of how Isaac came to be, He simply introduces us to the story of how Jesus would come to be to a young woman who would be equally horrified that she was about to have a baby. You have an old woman who thought she couldn't have a baby, and you have a young girl who thought she shouldn't be having a baby. And Matthew has drawn in just few words a reference to a point in history that would make sense to us. So the stage is set to introduce how this child came. So the first thing we learn is, where did he come from? Alluding to the miraculous birth of Isaac to the miraculous birth of Jesus, the answer to the question is, where did he come from? He came from God. So he's introduced and set in frame that concept. The second question I want to ask then is, who did he come from? Who did he come from? And you may be thinking, Mark, you just answered that question. I did kind of, and then I didn't. We know he came from God, but who did he come from? Let's look at this. Not only is Matthew and Luke pointing us to who he was, God's son, they're also pointing us to how he came to us through man. And that's the beauty of the incarnation, the God-man, the one sent from God, the son of God, through mankind to get to us. I know it's a strange reference. Many of us can relate to this. I'm going to try to relate to it on two or three different levels. I remember when I was a kid, we used to come to the summers. I shared this before, and, uh, up in north-central Missouri. and I had an aunt and uncle who lived in Meadville, Missouri, and we would go spend time with them. I loved both of them. and Being at that age, somewhere between 9 and 13, I think was the age I was spending my summers up here, uh, really enjoyed... Uh, being with them, but I wanted to prove to them I was a big boy. Mom and dad were back in Indiana. Scott and I were hanging out with them, and and I'd want to help my aunt. And she took me grocery shopping with her one time, and and I wanted to carry this brown bag in, and she didn't really want me to. I could tell she didn't want me to, but I was stubborn. I I know that was to shock you, but I was going to do this. And she's like, well, let me, honey, honey, let me get that one. And I grabbed it, and I turned from the trunk, and it slipped through my arms. And when it hit, I heard something shatter. She had bought two big, big glass containers of orange juice. And both of them just broke all over the driveway. And I knew she wanted to swap me. I would have. But she was loving, and she said, oh, it's okay, and we'll get some more. And I thought, oh, I was so embarrassed, but I wanted to be the big guy. It's, it's like that same sensation I've had. I hope this doesn't make anybody uncomfortable. When Alex was a little, uh, he was 10 years older, 10 and a half years older than Brayden, but when he was about 11 or 12, he'd want to hold Brayden. And I'm realizing, I know you want to, but if he falls, everything changes. Have have you ever had a moment in your life where someone who wasn't mature enough to handle the responsibility they were given made you uncomfortable? Now you'll know what God felt like when he brought us Jesus. How he handed something of great fragility and value to a group of people who were probably too immature spiritually to handle it, but he did. He did. He took a wonderful risk. And Matthew's gonna show that to us. He's gonna prove it to us. And how he does it is he, he brings up some disreputable women. That sounds harsh, but I want to tell you, you have to see this to appreciate what Matthew's doing. Matthew does something that no Jew would ever do in a genealogy for Jews. He traces Jesus through women. They weren't mentioned in any. Very, you'll find very few genealogies that mention women, unless they were queens. And these women aren't queens. These are dis reputable women. All of them have one of those, you know, things after their name. Let me tell you their story. The first is Tamar. Now, Tamar's story is complicated, and it's a PG-13 explanation, and I know we're not all PG-13 in this room, so I'm going to encourage you, write down Genesis chapter 38 if you don't know this story. Here's what takes place. This is, uh, well, verse 3. Let's look at verse 3. Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, so the mother's mentioned here, which isn't done. So let's, what are we to learn from this story? This is why most of us don't read the genealogy in the Bible, because we don't have the resources available to go back and say, well, who was she, and who was he, and why are they mentioned? So let me do that for you briefly this morning. Tamar was married to Judah. Judah's one of the 12 sons, and she's married to Judah's son. Judah's son dies, and she has no children. Now, please remember what we've taught about Old Testament history. For a woman to not have a son or a husband to care for her, she would have to beg or prostitute herself. Well, there was God had set it up in his law that when her husband died, one of his brothers was to impregnate her so that she would have a child that would carry on the name of the the lost brother. Well, Judah arranged that one of his sons would impregnate her, as was his duty, so that her brother's name and his land and everything would be propagated. Well, this brother, his name's Onan, and he's known as a total creeper, because Onan sleeps with her regularly, but will not impregnate her, Genesis 38. She goes to her father-in-law and says, he's using me. I need, I need a child to propagate my future. And Judah does nothing. He's like, yeah, yeah, whatever. And that's not in the Bible, but it's paraphrased. <laughs> so he totally blows her off. So she knows that he's about to go into the big city for business. So she goes ahead of him into the city, and she, she disguises herself like a prostitute, and she seduces him, or he willingly hires her. And he impregnates her and doesn't know it and then she reminds him later yeah this baby's yours i was the woman you slept with when you went into town it's a good chapter to read would you put her story in your tracing your life back to how good you were you know it's tamar you know and she's mentioned but she becomes the the mother of Perez, and Perez is right directly in the line. It's from Perez. Once again, God gave a fragile, valuable thing to a spiritually immature person, trusting that it would be delivered. Then there's the story of Rahab. Well, Rahab's a prostitute. She's not a Jew. She's a foreigner. And she lived in the city of Jericho, And when they led the people across the Jordan River into the Promised Land, the first city they came across was Jericho. And and spies went in and spied out the land. And Rahab had heard what happened 40 years previous when the great Egyptian Pharaoh was defeated by the God of the Israelites. And she knew of this God. And she protected these men, and God protected her. And verse 5 says Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. You know, Rahab? And then you have Ruth. And we talked about her in the Shadow series. Verse 5, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, she was a Moabitess, she was a worshiper of false gods, she was the enemy of the Jews, and she would become the maternal grandmother or great-grandmother of King David. And then there's Bathsheba, which is funny in verse 6, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. She's not even mentioned, but she is, because they would know who King David's wife was and Matthew's not hiding any family history here. He says she had been Uriah's wife. Well, Daddy, why isn't she Uriah's wife anymore? Well, because David killed him. He got her pregnant while Uriah's wife, and then he had Uriah killed to cover up his sins. You know Bathsheba. So if you're going to write a history of your family, are you including any of these women? I'm not. God did. Through Matthew, the Holy Spirit inspired him to include this. Once again, God has shown that he will trust immature people with something so valuable and fragile as the future of his king who would come and sit on the throne. What a wonderful risk he took. And then he goes in verses 7 through 11. This is a history lesson that many of us, including myself, have to really polish up our understanding of the Old Testament. But let's put it this way. These were bad kings. Matthew lists some kings that are not the kind of kings that actually ever honored God. But through this lineage of even bad kings, God got done what he wanted to do. Names like Rehoboam, Abijah, Asaph, Jehoshaphat, Ahaz, Losers. People that were taking what God intended for good and turning it completely against God and doing it for their own good and ruling. These were Old Testament names that would trigger remembrances of the times where it said they did not follow the ways of the Lord, they followed the ways of their fathers. Why would that be in the genealogy? If you have an appreciation for literature or film, you'd realize these are bad guys who risked what God intended for good. javert The Inspector from Les Mis. Voldemort from Harry Potter. Sauron from Lord of the Rings. Scar from the Lion King. These are evil people. Evil people like Rajay Davis of the Cleveland Indians in the seventh game. People who were trying to steal from God what was good. So Matthew includes them. I'm really glad. First hour didn't laugh at all. So we have... Women with pasts who still love the Lord, bad kings who didn't love the Lord, and restorers, verses 12 through 16. Faithful people who came back from the punishment that God allowed Israel to go through in Babylon. And they came back and they restored the law. They restored the reading of God's word. They restored the temple. They rebuilt the wall. They reestablished what God said they could. So why does Matthew start his history this way? Because the people that would read Matthew's history of Jesus would be asked to give up their marriages, their children, their careers, and their lives for the kingdom. And he wanted us to know that God has been doing this from the very beginning through people just like us. It's worth it. If I can put it very simply in perspective, God did not look on a Tuesday night and realize his world was falling apart and came up with a great idea Wednesday morning named Jesus. Jesus. God knew from the beginning of time that he would have to send this son. So he sent it through broken people like you and me. And aren't we grateful that he trusted something so valuable and fragile to people that are so immature? And if that offends you, then you've not come to grips with your own sin. Those of us who understand our own sin, we realize God handed us this baby and we almost dropped him. Because God cared with the wonderful risk he took. So the third question then is, who did he come from? We know he came from God, but he came through man. God, man, the incarnation. Who did he come for? Well, he answers that in verse 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And in that opening line of his record, he has established everything we need to know about who this Jesus is. First of all, he came for those who needed rescued. He's our savior. We know that because he says this, the history, a genealogy, a record of Jesus Christ. Now in America, to be honest, most of us think Christ is his last name. And we missed the point. If I called him King Jesus you would realize by attaching the name king to Jesus that I'm making a statement about who he is. We lose, I think, If I, well, maybe we don't, but I think many do. We lose the value of when he's called Jesus Christ. The Christ is the Greek word Christos, which means the Hebrew word Messiah. Messiah Jesus, the promised one, the anointed one, the chosen one. In fact, they wouldn't have called him Jesus. They would have called him Yeshua which really sounds like an Old Testament guy named Joshua. It's the same name. So Yeshua means the Lord delivers. What was Joshua? He was the one that Moses told to take God's people into the promised land. And isn't that what Yeshua will do for every one of us? He will take us into our promised land. So by calling him Yeshua, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, he's telling us, who this story is about. It's the anointed one, the deliverer, the one who will lead us to salvation. The second thing he identifies is he came for those who needed lead. He calls him the son of David, King David, the one that's been promised. When David wanted to build a temple to honor God in Jerusalem on the holy Mount Zion, God said to him, you're not going to build my city because you have blood on your hands. Now, many of us think that's because David was a warrior. I tend to believe it's not. I think it's because of Uriah, who we already mentioned. He, had, he killed Uriah. And God said, like, you can't, you're a murderer. You can't be the one to build my temple. So he says in 2 Samuel 7, 12, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The word forever leaps off the page. There wasn't an immediate fulfillment to this prophecy, and that was Solomon, who would build the temple. But Solomon's kingdom fell apart. But the one that would come in the future, there's always a now and a then component to prophecy. There's an immediate fulfillment or close fulfillment, and then there's a future promised fulfillment. And Jesus would be the one that would sit on the throne forever, and he would be the one to lead us. King David would give birth to King Jesus, and King Jesus would reign for eternity. Then there's a third thing we see here. He came from those who need connected to God, the son of Abraham. And this is where Matthew takes us all the way back to the beginning all the way back to Genesis 12, when God called Abraham and said, from your offspring, I will bless all nations. That concept of blessing is covenant talk. That God has said, I will be good to you because I love you. Obey me, listen to me, trust me. And he entered into this covenant. God promised that these people would not only be blessed in their lifetime, but they would be a blessing to all nations, the entire world. Thus, Matthew is showing that the kingdom of God includes more than just the Jews. I'd like you to look with me at Genesis 49 for a couple of points. In Genesis 49, verses 9 through 10, it says, you are a lion's cub, O Judah. And I want to pause there for a moment and let you know that cubs are mentioned throughout scripture. I've never found a cardinal in all of God's word. So just exegesis brings up great truth. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down like a lioness who dares to rouse him. Listen to this. The scepter will not depart from Judah. Pause there for a moment. Judah, Tamar, Perez, Jesus. Hmm. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his. You've heard Jesus called the lion of Judah, have you not? And herein you see the promise that even through a broken man like Judah, a broken woman like Tamar, God's grace is sufficient and God's grace is perfect. So we know where he came from and we know who he came from and we know what he came for. So, what's the result? This will probably be offensive, yet I do it with no apologies because it's a conversation we should have regularly. What is the result of what Matthew's revealing to us? It's this. He is the center of all things. He always has been. He always will be. And if that is true, then you and I are not the center of all things. We never have been, and we never will be. Which means our generation is not the center of all history. We never have been, and we never will be. And the United States is not the center of all history. It never has been, and it never will be. Jesus is the center. One man, sent from God, who came through man to bless all mankind of all nations who have ever existed. Billions of people have come and gone, and if the Lord waits longer, billions may come and go. Empires have come, and empires have died, and they all will. Nations and countries have grown and nations and countries have disappeared. Rulers have come and rulers will go, but the one ruler will sit on the throne forever. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John wrote their histories to prove one thing that all of us needs to know. The kingdom of God is here. It came in Jesus Christ and it will last forever. We are not the center, you are not the center. The world and power and governments are not the center. Jesus is the center of all history. He is the king. And if that is true, there are implications to every one of our lives. If he is the center of history, we ought to make him the center of ours. And we ought to live in such a way that that's important. God has put women in this genealogy. He's put broken leaders in this genealogy. He's put sinners in this genealogy. There are Jews in this genealogy. There are Gentiles in this genealogy. And what does it teach us? It means we don't care where you come from and we don't care what you've done. You can get in on the history that Jesus Christ offers all of us. He is Lord. He is Savior. He is King. He always will be. So what does that mean? It means this. Jesus is a radical departure from what we expected. And because of that, we can be more than we ever expected to be. It says in Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, Matthew recorded this the words of Jesus For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. If you have once in your life proclaimed Jesus Christ as your Lord, and you find yourself no longer on a knee before him daily, I beg you to repent. I beg you to return to a knee in front of Christ and claim all that he is and all that he reveals himself to be. And if you have never made that decision, I would love to have a conversation with you. Some of our staff would have a conversation with you. Some of our elders would love to sit down and tell you as satisfied customers why we take a knee before Jesus Christ. He is the center of all the world. He ought to be the center of ours. Let's stand together.